The struggle between imperialism and the people of the world goes on every day and everywhere. This week, it will manifest in rival summits in Los Angeles. One is hosted by the Biden administration, and the Alternative Summit is being organized and hosted by a large coalition of grassroots organizations. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the Socialist Program with Brian Becker. My name is John Preisner. It's June 7th, 2022. Today we are going to be doing something a little different in this episode because of our role in helping to organize the People's Summit for Democracy in Los Angeles this week. Today's episode will be a bit shorter and we will be talking only with our host, Brian Becker. In tomorrow's show, we will be joined once again by Marxist economist Richard Wolff. And on the Thursday episode of The Real Story, we will be coming to you from the People Summit in Los Angeles. Video episodes of The Real Story are available on Breakthrough News. Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern at youtube.com slash breakthrough news. If you enjoy our show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. Brian, it's a big week and our focus this week will be here where I am and where you will be shortly in Los Angeles for the People's Summit. Yeah, John, I think it's so important. I, again, for our audience, normally, you know, we have Esther and Walter, Nicole and myself doing in the news. That's a, a longer segment that we do. We record it on Monday late afternoon. It comes out Tuesday mornings as a podcast. This week, because of the People's Summit and the fact that we're so deeply involved in the organizing, we're going to alter our schedule. And again, what we'll do today, John, is really something well, I'd say a little bit different, but it, actually it's quite a bit different. I want to go over some of the sort of generalized positions that our show has been taking, especially since the February 24th invasion by Russia into Ukraine. And I want to talk about that today, generalize from it a little bit. Again, we'll be in Los Angeles. We'll be covering the People's Summit. We'll be bringing you interviews and coverage from the People's Summit later in the week. But I want to get started by looking at not the news of today and tomorrow, but the news of what's happening big picture in global politics since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. You recently gave a talk titled Understanding the New Era in Global Politics. You covered important ground in that talk. And let's start there. If we are in a new era of global politics, when did it start? What are some of the differences between where we are now and where we have been in earlier eras or earlier periods? Right. I think this is going to be, as I said, John, the beginning of a longer discussion about this, because I believe this is of qualitative importance, meaning 
that we are witnessing and have witnessed an important shift in world politics. And what I talked about in that speech called Understanding the New Era of Global Politics is mainly that the period that started with the end of the Soviet Union, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the overthrow of the socialist government in the Soviet Union, which you know reached its final consummation in 1991, but the overthrow of the other Soviet allies in Eastern and Central Europe, all of those governments were overthrown. The last one, Yugoslavia, was finally dissolved 10 years later after NATO carried out a massive military attack against Yugoslavia. But between 1988 and 1991, the socialist governments that constituted what was at that time called the socialist camp were destroyed. They were overthrown. Capitalist counter-revolutionaries took power And the U.S. government, which was fighting socialism, had been opposed to socialism and communism and the national liberation movements that the socialist camp had supported. The U.S. government became hysterical with joy and jubilation, and they were pretty surprised, pretty shocked. They didn't really see that coming. Maybe in 1988 or 89, one could envision the final collapse of the socialist camp. But if you had asked anybody in 1981, would the Soviet Union and the socialist camp governments disappear within a decade, I'd say almost no one or perhaps no one would have been able to predict that. So they, the imperialists, the capitalists were very happy. Their main foe, the socialists, had been overthrown. It seemed like the end of the Cold War. Many apologists for capitalism called it the end of history, meaning human beings had evolved through different stages of development economically and politically, had experienced different social systems, had gone through the period of slavery and then feudalism and then capitalism, which of course had a lot of slavery too in it. But different social systems had evolved. It was considered to be sort of a a march forward, a march of progress, and that we had finally reached our crowning achievement by the destruction of socialism, meaning that capitalism was the end of history. Capitalism was the end game, that you might dream about another alternative way of life. You might dream about something called socialism, but that had been tried and now was vanquished. And so there was this kind of euphoria within the capitalist establishment, especially in the U.S., But there was also a lot of discussions and big policy choices to be made once the United States was free of a global enemy, an enemy of global proportions, meaning an enemy of the magnitude of the Soviet Union. What was going to happen? What would happen to the military industrial complex? I mean, absent a real first class global enemy, wouldn't there be demands for the end of the arms race, the end of endless spending on death and destruction, to use that money for what was at that time called a peace dividend, the dividend of the end of the Cold War, meaning money could be used to build crumbling bridges or to update the infrastructure or the social infrastructure where working class families could have accessible childcare and healthcare could become free and students could go to college without bringing on a huge debt. Couldn't there be a peace dividend now that the enemy of the United States was gone. Well, of course, that was an existential threat in and of itself for the military-industrial complex, which always saw war and the production and 
distribution of weapons as something very good because they made lots and lots of money from it. So that era, the era of the socialist camp ended, and then a new era started. And that era has existed between 1991 until 2022. And we could call that era the era of U.S. unipolar domination or the era in which the U.S. sought unipolar hegemonic domination over the rest of the world. And you can see by a quick look, a quick survey of U.S. foreign policy during those 30 years, the United States imposed structural adjustment programs on most of the world's people. 86% of the population of the world was subjected to IMF-imposed structural adjustment, meaning the economies of developing countries had to be opened up so that they could be taken over by the biggest corporations and banks from the United States and the other major capitalist powers. The U.S. invaded Afghanistan, went to war against Iraq twice, carried out the destruction of the government of Yugoslavia with a massive NATO attack in 1999, dropped 28,000 bombs and missiles on that country. The U.S., went to war against Libya, having invaded Iraq and toppled the government and executed Saddam Hussein. The U.S. went on in 2011 to carry out basically the same task in Libya, the country in Africa with the largest oil reserves. And then the plan was to go on and to do the same in Syria, to overthrow the Assad government. And then the big prize, of course, would be Iran. So the U.S., looked at this era, the last 30 years, where there was no check, no check on U.S. power, military power, and the U.S. just ran wild, like a rampage of war and death and destruction and invasion and occupation and drone attacks and economic sanctions against countries all over the world, all of it to maintain or discipline the world under the hegemon of U.S. imperialism. That was the era. And no country, even the biggest countries like Russia or China, basically took it upon themselves to challenge that new era of global politics that emanates from the collapse of the Soviet Union. So what Russia's invasion of Ukraine means on February 24th, and we're going to talk about this more later and in subsequent discussions, is that the Russian government, which is a bourgeois government, it's not a communist government, it's not like the government of the Soviet Union, it doesn't have socialist aspirations, but it is a government that obviously is trying to maintain the security and the interests of the Russian system, which of course is now a bourgeois system, but also of Russia's legitimate national security concerns, meaning that Russia, the Russian government, and if it wasn't Putin, it would have been anybody would not have sat by idly and allowed the U.S. to incorporate all of Russia's former allies in Eastern and Central Europe, incorporate them into NATO, and use those very countries that had been Russia's closest allies as a staging ground to place advanced missiles, conventional and nuclear missiles, targeting Russia almost literally, and in the case of Ukraine, literally on its borders. And so the invasion by the Russian government on February 24th marked the end of the era between 1991 and 2022, where U.S. hegemony was essentially unchallenged. It was challenged in minor ways, in minor places. China challenged it in China's periphery, 
Of course, the Russians challenged it when the U.S. tried to overthrow the Assad government in Syria. Russia's military intervention in 2013, 14, 15 was decisive in uh, stopping the U.S. from carrying out its regime change plans in Syria. But more or less, the Russians and the Chinese decided to sort of live within the parameters of the global order, the unipolar power of America that had been established with the collapse of the Soviet Union. And of course, for Russia, Russia was much weaker in 2022 than it was when it was the Soviet Union or the anchor of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union had 260 million people. Russia has 160 million. Ukraine and its vast agricultural produce were part of the Soviet Union. They were one with Russia. Azerbaijan, with the vast oil resources from the Caspian Sea, that was part of the Soviet Union. And thus, really, Russia was able to access all of those vast resources. The country, countries of the Baltics, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, not to mention the huge countries that constituted the Asian republics of the former Soviet Union. So Russia was weaker. Russia was not the same military power or economic power that it had been when it was a socialist, the leader of a socialist, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. But nonetheless, Russia, a major country, decided to challenge the United States and use military force to stop the U.S. efforts to incorporate Ukraine directly into NATO, meaning not allowing or trying to not allow the United States to incorporate Ukraine into a U.S.-led military alliance, that would, in fact, be a danger, a threat, an existential threat from which Russia could not ever escape. And so Russia basically challenged the existing world order, and now you can see the U.S., has attempted to evict Russia from the world economy. It's imposed vast sanctions. It's united European countries to do the same against Russia. Anyway, it's a very complex situation, but we are in a new era. We are in a new era in the era of un-challenged, sort of meaning major challenges to U.S. unipolar power. That period has come to an end. We don't know yet how this era will end. Obviously, we don't have a crystal ball but I do want to point out that world politics is not going back. It's not going to return to the way it was between 1991 and 2022. Thanks, Brian. So you've talked about the era from which we are emerging, the era of unipolar power. So what came before that? You mentioned the Soviet Union and the socialist camp, the Cold War. Let's just go through some of the different eras and political periods in contemporary times. Well, for modern times, and I think it's important for socialists and for Marxists, but for anti-imperialists of all political stripes, to take into account exactly where we are and where we're coming from. It's not enough to simply be an activist. It's not enough to be an organizer. It's crucially important to understand the characteristic features of the time in which one is living. And that's what I mean by a certain era in global politics. And so if you look back at the history of the socialist movement, you look back at the history since Marx and Engels, the formation of the Second International in the 1880s, and then the formation of the Third or Communist International in 1918, 1919, during these different periods for the socialist movement, 
anchoring the movement's political program and its orientation to a correct assessment of the characteristic features of the time were always considered to be critically important. And I think for those of us who are organizing for social justice and for peace, organizing for socialism in 2022, it's really important to have a sense of this historical progression. And in some cases, historical regression as happened after the collapse of the Soviet Union. But I wanna identify five basic political periods or eras in global politics that have particular specific characteristic features. This doesn't mean that those characteristic features are everywhere and dominate at all times within the political period, but I do think that they are able to be recognized and that we should have a consciousness about what their impact was on the politics of that period. Lenin in 1916 wrote the book, Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism. That was done to explain the outbreak of World War I, which was the beginning of a new era for its time. Prior to 1914, prior to the outbreak of World War I, there was the era in which Lenin describes the evolution of competitive capitalism into monopoly capitalism, or what he calls imperialism. It was an era between 1880, I would say more or less, 1880 and 1914, a 34-year period. During that period, the policies pursued by different capitalist governments and different capitalist corporations to colonize Africa, Asia, the Middle East, and Latin America evolved very dramatically and very observably, and Lenin pointed this out in his book, Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism. Instead of this country or that country pursuing a colonial policy, meaning to take over, dominate, conquer the land and labor and resources and people of different parts of the world, the idea of colonialism became completely globalized. And colonialism was no longer a policy choice for this or that capitalist power, but all of the capitalists pursued a policy of colonization such that the entire world was colonized. So for instance, in 1884, there was the meeting in the Berlin Conference of all the European capitalist countries, and the U.S. was there as an observer. The U.S. was sort of a latecomer to a colonial expansionism because it was pursuing the same policy, quote, domestically on the territory of North America, meaning it was going West. The American capitalist ruling class was going West, seizing the lands of indigenous people, committing genocide, using slave labor as the motor force for the economy, taking and destroying or stealing huge parts of Mexico, that happened in 1848. Then further out all the way with the takeover of Mexican lands all the way to California. So the U.S. had been preoccupied with the North American mainland. Meanwhile, the European capitalists were colonizing Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East. So in 1884 at the Berlin Conference, and again, the U.S. is there as an observer, not as the principal, but it's there as an observer. It's at the table. All of the European colonists took a map of Africa 
and divided that map up. And each of the imperialists, each of the colonizers, took a part or different parts of Africa. And between 1884 and 1902, all of Africa uh, was colonized with the exception of Ethiopia. And then that division of Africa was so complete that all forms of African self-governance disappeared within 18 years. So this is an emblematic of that era, the era of 1880 to 1914, when competitive capitalism has morphed into monopoly capitalism or imperialism, and the colonization of the world becomes complete. Now, you can see the division of Africa took place peacefully. But as the U.S. decided to enter the colonial scramble, the United States went to war against Spain. It went to war against Spain in Puerto Rico and in Cuba and in the Philippines. That was the wars of 1898, 1899 for the Philippines. That war extended you know, beyond. A million Filipinos died at the hands of the U.S. invaders as they tried to retain their independence or maintain it or build it. But the U.S. enters the scramble for colonies sort of late in the game compared to the Europeans. But this is how the U.S. entered, 1898, 1899. 1898 was also when Hawaii was annexed. The U.S. was moving towards Asia. The U.S. was pivoting towards Asia, more or less. And of course, the takeover of Cuba and Puerto Rico allowed the U.S. then to move and steal a part of Colombia, create Panama, create a Panama Canal, and having seized the Philippines, which is on the outer edge of mainland China, the U.S. design then was to have the industrial goods produced in the northeastern cities of what was then the industrial heartland of the United States be able to find their way all the way to Asia. So the U.S. joins late in the game, but that's the period 1880 to 1914, the era where capitalism becomes imperialism. Monopoly capitalism. 1914 to 1945 represents the second era. Again, these are just for contemporary times in modern day capitalism. 1914 to 1945. That is the, the inter imperialist scramble for colonies and markets and spheres of influence has created a situation that all of the world has now been occupied, colonized turned into the domain of this or that capitalist country. But each of the capitalists, because capitalism is an expansive, dynamic economic system and a competitive economic system, they need more and more markets. They need more and more resources. But now there are none left because the entire world has been divided already between the various imperialists, and they go to war against each other. World War I was the beginning of the era of inter- imperialist rivalry that becomes very militarized, very violent, leads to World War I, a war unlike any other war in the earlier history of the human race. And 20 million people die in a few years. 20 years later, less than 20, the capitalist world, the imperialist world has a repeat performance, World War II. Again, motivated by the same issues. Who's going to dominate Africa? Who's going to dominate Asia? Who's going to dominate the Middle East? Who's going to have what colonies? And so the United States and Japan are in a struggle for who's going to conquer Asia. Of course, 
Britain and France and Germany are contesting for colonies in Africa, in the Middle East, in Asia, but also for the domination of the Balkans and for the domination of the Mediterranean. And ultimately, in the case of German imperialism under Hitler, the domination over what was then called the Soviet Union. So this was the period of extreme violence, inter-imperialist war. That's era number two. Now, that era ends in a, a shocking and surprising way for the imperialists, for U.S. imperialism in particular, which is the lone imperialist country still standing. Its factories are, are humming. Its factories have not been destroyed by bombing. Its cities are intact. The U.S. economy, if anything, is the manufacturer of the world. The U.S. population in 1945 was 5% of the world's population, but gross national production in the United States accounted for 50% of all of the goods and services produced anywhere in the world. So 5% of the people were producing half of the world's total wealth. That is a consequence of this sort of privileged position that the U.S. enjoyed at the end of World War II, where it intended to become the unipolar power in the world. It created the United Nations to end what was called the scourge of war, meaning the scourge of inter-imperialist war, not the wars against colonized people, and to be able to settle conflicts peacefully within the chambers of the United Nations according to international law and the UN Charter. The U.S. also created the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, and at the Bretton Woods Conference in New Hampshire in 1944, created a, a global system whereby the U.S. dollar, the dollar printed by U.S. printers, became the currency reserve for the entire world. So this amazing privileged position that the U.S. felt, we will be the unipolar hegemon of the world. But what also happened at the end of World War II, and as a consequence of this extreme violence that destroyed the old existing colonial order, was that the people of the colonized world, the so-called third world, began fighting to win, to become free, and to become independent. And when they did that, they looked to the Soviet Union, and they received support and aid. And the people in Vietnam fighting for independence were led by communists. Same in Korea. Communists were leading the fight in Indonesia and in India, in many other places. They weren't the only ones. There were also bourgeois nationalist forces who were anti-colonial, but the communists were playing a major role. And at the end of World War II, and because the Red Army had liberated Eastern and Central Europe from fascism, the Red Army was in Eastern and Central Europe, and I won't go into this in great detail, but as a byproduct of their occupation of Eastern and Central Europe, within the next few years, there developed in Eastern and Central Europe socialist governments led by communist parties. So by 1945 and 46, instead of it being a unipolar power where the United States exercised complete hegemonic authority over the entire world, a second power emerged. It was the Soviet Union in alliance with North Korea and North Vietnam, and then in 1949, the People's Republic of China, and then all of the Eastern and Central European governments that became socialist as well. So between 1945 and 1991, this is the third era, what's called wrongly the Cold War. It wasn't that cold for Koreans or for the Vietnamese people or for the other people 
of the colonized, the semi-colonized world who were ravaged by imperialist wars and invasions. But generally speaking, there was a certain equilibrium between the two major powers, the U.S. on the one side and the Soviet Union on the other, each leading their own sociologically different camp. And that equilibrium, that bipolarity created a new world order. And within that context, the Soviet Union and the socialist camp gave aid and assistance to those fighting for national liberation. In Cuba, for instance, in 1959, the Cubans could never have sustained their revolutionary path against the might of the U.S. if it hadn't been for the support they received from the Soviet Union. That was true for many other countries. The Vietnamese were able to defeat the U.S. invaders and shoot down all those B-52 bombers, not only because of the heroism and courage of Vietnamese soldiers and the Vietnamese people, they also had advanced weapons that came from Czechoslovakia and the Soviet Union and China. So they had the aid and assistance of the socialist camp. That was the third era, the era, what's called the Cold War in mainstream media. We call it the era of global class war or global class struggle, where the socialist governments aiding the national liberation movements and in support of the struggle of workers and poor peasants for social justice, they constituted one camp. And on the other side were the camp of the imperialists. So that's era number three, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the overthrow of the socialist governments leads to era number four, and that's the era of unipolar power. The U.S. finally gets to rule the roost, and we can see what the last 30 years has looked like as a consequence. But now, because the U.S. made a move basically to either go to war or to destroy or both for Russia and China, they pushed Russia into the corner Russia, and doesn't mean we support the Russian military invasion into Ukraine, but Russia decided, the Russian government decided that it could no longer keep going along with the, the era of unipolar U.S. domination because it was leading to a war with Russia that would put Russia in an entirely disadvantageous position. And again, John, as we know, in 2018, the U.S. reoriented its military doctrine for major power conflict, meaning they too saw that the era that existed between 1991 and the beginning of 2020 or 2018, that era was coming to an end because China and Russia were becoming big enough, strong enough, had their own national interests and their own international political, economic, and military alliances that it would challenge U.S. unipolar power. So the U.S. decided to expand NATO it has a Western front in its war. That's the war against Russia. That's the expansion of NATO. And in the East, U.S. imperialism has in this new era a second front. And it's called the, it's not NATO, but it's creating or attempting to create military and economic alliances designed to contain China. The U.S. in this new era recognizes, or the U.S. imperialists have decided that the status quo from 1991 isn't going to work, that they have to prepare for major power conflict with Russia and China. And the reason, John, I wanted to take time out here to talk about that is that if we're just activists, if we're just organizers, if we don't recognize what era we're in and the characteristic features, we won't understand the political drift. We have to be able to know exactly where we are to prepare for the challenges, the real challenges that are coming. 
And so I want to conclude here and tell the audience that we're going to come back to this topic. We're going to talk about in another episode why the new era, this new era of global politics is not only extremely dangerous, more dangerous, in fact, than even the period of the Cold War, which is it's hard to imagine something more dangerous than that, more along the lines of the dangers presented to the world at the onset of World War II, except now the world and the major powers in the world are nuclear powers. So we are facing an existential crisis. The problem is U.S. imperialism is a progenitor of endless war. It's absolutely determined to maintain and retain its power as an empire. It's absolutely determined to destroy, defeat, or weaken Russia, and the same with China. And Russia and China are determined not to let that happen. That's the basic equation of the new era of global politics. Thanks, Brian. So important. So we're talking about five distinct eras in contemporary global politics. We've entered a new era, and activists and organizers have to appreciate where we are politically. I'm happy to let our audience know that we will pursue this topic and follow-up discussions on the Socialist Program, and we will cover it in as many episodes as needed to cover the political challenges of our current period. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.